in the tradition of Disney's greatest musicals. Disney is now opening up its vault to honor the 50th anniversary of its 10th animated classic, Melody Time. Featuring one of your favorite Disney characters, Donald Duck. Now, for the very first time on video, you'll want to share these timeless, colorful musical stories with your family. Don't miss your chance to celebrate the 50th anniversary of Walt Disney's Melody Time, coming to video. Welcome back to Who's Filmography Is It Anyway, folks, where the points don't matter, but the Headless Horsemen do. Uh, this week, in our Disney rabbit hole, no pun intended, we cover Melody Time and the adventures of Ichabod and Mr. Toad. As always, I'm your co-host, Josh Page, and with me, as always, my co-host and friend, Steve Molina. I believe there's only one Headless Horseman, right? No, there are multiple headless horsemen. You just can't see them. They're just kind of in the background there. I was just very disappointed. We didn't see the headless horseman come out of a tree. It'd be Christopher Walken. And be know, Christopher Walken. <laughs> <laughs> I, I feel like uh, Christopher Walken is an immortal being. So if Walt Disney had made a Christopher Walken headless horseman, it would not have shocked me. No, not at all. I was definitely disappointed to not, for the lack of Christopher Walken, but I, did, you know, I digress. It's... We can only get so much of him, you know? I actually recently, well, not like too recently, but this year I watched uh, Sleepy Hollow for the first time. The Tim oh, Burton really? movie. Yeah. It was okay. I don't it's, know. It's um, like many Tim Burton movies. It's got great production design. Um, yes. The look of it is very, um, it's very uh, seductive. And it has his, uh, and... it has his like typical mise-en-scene. I, I yeah. just, I don't know. It has the movie that, itself like, is, eh. The most shocking part to me was seeing Emperor Palpatine in the movie. There are a lot of little cameos and, and roles from people, famous people all over the place. But Anyway, <laughs> let's get into medley time. And I really don't have notes for like the overall story uh, for either, you know, for what was going on in the Disney studio at this time. No history lesson. Mm -hmm. The only thing that I will say is that the point of these two movies, from what I saw, was to make money. Walt needed to make money so that he could go back to making full narrative feature films. That was the central purpose of both of these movies. This is it. This, this is when the, the mouse started getting greedy. Well, it wasn't greed. It. But think about it at this point, because these <clears throat> movies came out in 1948 and 1949. Yeah. At this point, the war was over, and Walt was starting to get people back who had shipped out. So he's pulling his team back together. He can foresee a narrative film working again. So if you see that you have the potential, you're going to use every resource in your belt to get to where you want to go to yeah to become so greedy yeah, pulled, yeah, yeah. yeah to get greedy <laughs> you know this is the beginning of uh disney becoming the conglomerate pac-man that it has become today and swallowing other mega companies whole you know it all started 1948 you know when they got back on track and said it's all about the money i will say after the war and after the strike walt definitely moved into a more conservative circle politically at least well, that's, that's interesting. 
it is interesting because he grew up idolizing Charlie Chaplin and Charlie uh-huh. Chaplin is very far to the left. Like he was kicked out of this country for being a communist. Yeah. Obviously that was maybe a bit extreme. Yeah. <laughs> and I apologize on behalf of America to the <laughs> Chaplin estate. <laughs> but, well, <clears throat> you know, it's just interesting, like I said, because Walt grew up loving that man. He met with him. He became friends with Charlie Chaplin in the, his early days in Hollywood. And now by the 1950s, he's moved into this right-wing conservative group because he felt screwed over by the unions. Every week we've been kind of talking about like this is how this has been more of a historical thing for Disney and Walt and what's, what happened with him. And um, we've kind of reiterated it in past episodes but it's kind of like this is one of those cases of the artists um, kind of having to make sacrifices in order to please the crowds or please the, you know, um, whatever, the economy or whatever, whoever's funding him or, or, or producers or whatever. And so this is kind of like, I think Fantasia was the mark where we had said it's kind of where Walt completely kind of changed his whole perspective changed, you know? His whole life changed. His whole life could have changed, you know? So <laughs> I think that, this is just part of his story It's kind of like he's not giving in or giving up i mean as we uh alluded to the silver age comes after this and and that's where disney kind of uh gets another stride and it's kind of just you know but i think as a creator they get their second wind absolutely so but i think as a creator and as an as a designer waltz kind of uh he's kind of shaken at this point he's kind of just he's a changed man you know we could just jump right into medley time uh it started with once upon a winter time by and the song is sung by francis La- uh, longford it's about i guess a couple young, a young couple on a winter's day in the late 1800s and they go ice skating and of course the rabbits are ice skating too because as we learned in bambi Rabbits can ice skate. Rabbits can ice skate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The woman falls into trouble with uh, almost falling down a waterfall, but the men save them. Well, actually, the animals save them. And yeah, fun times. It's great times, man. Then we go to Bumble Boogie, which is the music is by Freddie Martin and his orchestra. It's a swing jazz variation of Flight of the Bumblebee. This song, which was a song actually considered for Fantasia. They thought mm-hmm. about doing Flight of the Bumblebee for Fantasia. It's kind of a surrealist thing where a bug is flying through musical instruments that smack down, on, that are trying to swat him. I thought it was a lot of fun. This one yeah, is yeah, like yeah. jazzy and like, I don't know, it, I got it's into in, it. It's in tune with a lot of the other uh, wartime segments where they do something kind of, um, um, not surreal, but it's like they kind of pull you out of the experience by having the instruments come to life or they have, they do something with the music where they're animating to um, the music. It's kind you know of just. What it is? For me, that's the kind of segment I would imagine seeing in a, in a jazz Fantasia. If they were to take jazz music instead right. of classical music. Yeah, exactly. That's kind of what I would imagine seeing. And it's the same thing with maybe uh, the one from last week, all the cats are dancing. Oh, the cat, I was with... just thinking that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, then we get to the legend of Johnny Appleseed. And my goodness, what a harrowing journey this guy has. It's a, obviously, Johnny Appleseed is an American myth. This one, 
got oddly religious. Mm -hmm. I don't know about you, but I was like kind of taken aback by how much religion there was in this movie. They, uh, this segment. Yeah. I mean, it was, I know it was way more casual and more, um, just of the times for people to include God or religion or anything into any of the media. So I guess it was way more normal uh, in 1948, but I don't know. If you remember with Fantasia, they pulled away like uh, Ave Maria was supposed to end in a church. Right. And they said no, because it was too religious. And here they're just like throwing a Bible in willy nilly and some (laughs) angels. I'm like, granted the angel was like weird and uh, like a frontiersman. It just makes you want to grab your pitchfork and, you know, put on your horns and yeah just they got a lot of work to do um <laughs> we, and we move on to little toot we move on to little toot uh, sung by the andrew sisters who i don't know if you remember but they did the johnny fedora song in uh make my music that's where that sound came from i was wondering why my ears were bleeding again you know it's really <laughs> little toot is essentially the tugboat that can it's the same story. I feel story. like they ripped that story off, or maybe they were ripped off. But it's and it's almost the same story as Pedro, uh, the little tugboat. Little airplane. Yeah, in this case, the little tugboat wants to uh, tug a boat, except he gets he gets arrested. Literally, this little tugboat gets arrested, and it gets his father exiled into being a garbage ship because he throws a cruise into New York City. So rough stuff for little too. <laughs> so like I had said last, I think it was last week where I was, or maybe it was two weeks ago where we were talking about the, um, like the Disney sing-along videos. Um, I had said la- last week that we, there were storybooks I had read as a child that had um, characters from Song of the South and characters from Ichabod, Mr. Toad. And the little two segment, same with Johnny Appleseed. Well, Johnny Appleseed's also been folklore for some you know even outside of disney but the little toot segment like stood out to me because i was like i don't know why but i can like remember all of this and the image of the garbage ship i'm like this is very oddly um like memorable but not really in a good way i'm like why do you why is all why are all these images coming back to me mm-hmm. um but i guess a clip from the friendship song I don't know. What they saying? I don't know. A clip from Little Toot is featured briefly in the Friendship Song on Disney Singalongs, one of the Disney Singalongs uh, volumes. Oh, that's so, funny. So maybe that's where I knew it from, but that was quite a segment. Uh, well, that's uh, what you and I were saying last week. Um, some of these movies, they just, they just fall into the Disney cultural zeitgeist and are spit out. You don't know where they're from. You just know what they are. Yeah. And part of that, like you said, was by the incorporate in the parks and whatnot. Yeah. Uh, Then we go to Trees, which uh, the segment featured a recitation of the 1913 poem Trees by uh, Joyce Kilmer and the music by Oscar Roshback, performed by Fred Waring and the Pennsylvanians. (laughs) This one is about a tree and just the life cycle, I guess, of a tree during the seasons. The interesting part isn't really not even what's on the screen. It's about what's going on behind the camera. So to preserve the look for the original story sketches, layout artist Ken O'Connor came up with the idea of using frost cells 
and rendering the pastel image images right onto the cell. Before being photographed, each cell was laminated in clear liquor to protect the plastic. The result was a look that had never been seen in animation before. So apparently they took a lot of, uh, they added a lot of extra work into this segment, which is very strange because it was a very, uh, even though it was a short segment, it felt like a very long segment. Yeah, I think they did that intentionally. Yeah. The next one is Blame It on the Samba, where I guess Donald and Jose <clears throat> forgot how to Samba, even though they had learned about it twice already in two different movies. These but guys. Donald and Jose are just walking around sad, and the Akron, the other bird that was created back in saludos amigos pulls donald and jose into a restaurant which turns into a book somehow and they just samba again samba the old samba the old samba and then we go to pesco bill which uh, my lord pecos bill yeah they uh, this is the top <clears throat> the top note on imdb was that um due to controversy about cowboys smoking the segment was heavily edited for release to dvd because in the original Bill is seen smoking a cigarette in several sequences, but it was edited out in each case, resulting in removal of almost the entire tornado sequence, uh, <laughs> creating some odd hand and mouth movements for Bill throughout. Um, eventually, they put it, they put they, it back they, together. They, they added for back Disney in, make, making it the, one of the longer. Uh, this is the, the longest. Uh, this is and, the longest segment. With the smoking, I think it's 22 minutes. I think without the smoking, it's 17 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> so. Roy Rogers and the sons of uh, of the pioneers were the ones who sang this. And the segment starts by seeing them live action. And my God, I don't think that they could have um, made them any more stereotypical. <laughs> but I felt like the segment opened like the Big Lebowski. You know, you're following a tumbleweed with a narrator over it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's pretty crazy. <laughs> The story is actually about why coyotes howl at the moon. <laughs> That's like the moral of the story. Bill was a, lost in, on his way west from his parents' caravan and is raised by coyotes because, of course, he was. And we see some very strange things going on, one of which we'll talk about when we get to the categories. Uh, but somehow this leads Bill to becoming the best cowboy out there. He finds his steed lost in the woods and they become inseparable. He finds a woman who's like riding a catfish. Like that's literally how we first see her. They agree to marry, but Sue, which is the woman's name, uh, Bluefoot Sue is her full name, I guess. You're packing She's, a lot in here. Yeah. She says that she'll marry Bill but she has to ride his horse into the wedding ceremony. And Bill is nervous because the horse does not like this girl at all. The horse throws her off of him with a lot of work. She holds on for a while, but because of her corset or because of whatever she has under her dress, she bounces up and down until she reaches the fucking moon and is lost forever, which is why Bill howls at the moon and the coyotes in solidarity solidarity do so that's the end of the movie <laughs> that's all 
it's a wild, a wild time. I tried the best I could. <laughs> Steven, you did a great job. Melody time is not something that can very easily be summed up, but I think for you and I not during our traditional breakdowns, which thank you. Yeah, so let's get into the categories. Best song, best animated sequence, best voice actor, most traumatizing moment. Josh, take it away. What's your best song? Um, for me, I kind of felt like it was a no-brainer. I felt like uh, Bumble Boogie was yep, the one. Mine too. So we'll just do what we've been doing since we've got a lot of the same answers. We'll just have a discussion about it. It's kind of just, as we said, uh, the riff on Flight of the Bumblebee was creative. Um, I mean, it's just the way, again, with the experimental animation, it reminded me of, what is it, the Cats Don't Dance? No, Cats Don't Dance is a... a yeah, the Cats... Uh... No, yeah. cats, cats Don't Dance was something from the 90s. Uh, all the cats join in. <laughs> no, I just thought it was creative and experimental in the way that the shorts work best. In a post-Fantasia world, these are, for me, and I think for you, I, uh, they're the best kinds of shorts because Disney seems to be doing one of two things with their shorts in the wartime. is that They're either doing narrative segments where they have, they're focusing on characters and a, a, a storyline, or they're just doing something wild with the music and the animation blended together in the style of Fantasia. And I think that's where it works best. I agree. I, I think I, when they do the narratives, it, I it's mean, hit and miss. I, we could kind of jump a little and because I'm probably going to forget to bring it up in my final thoughts. I just feel like this movie's, um, narrative features worked better than the past ones mostly because of the sure. problem i said i have earlier when the narrative when the narrator dictates the story i hate it so these are actually like fleshed out stories i just feel like the narratives we got maybe missed the mark but we'll get into that later um so best animated sequence i also went with bumble boogie Okay. Uh, I think it interacted the best with the music. And like you said before with the music, I just like the experimentation of it. Uh, the tree sequence was like pretty, but it was overall just like, I, I you know, I could have done without it. I didn't need it. Uh, and none of the other ones are truly like that artistically boundary breaking. I don't know. I feel like Flight of the Bum, uh, the Bumble. Uh, Bumble Boogie was just the most jazzy and interesting and vibrant. Um, no, I, I actually went with the trees segment. I thought that all the different palettes, it reminded me of, um, I think it was Brazil in uh, I don't know, either Saludos or, or one of the others or Caballeros. But um, they seem to do, they seem to in all these move in the wartime segments, wartime films, they seem to include a segment that's very focused on like, kind of like, um, they remind me of like pastel, like oil, like oil canvas kind of paintings. Like they're like, it's, they're clear, as we've said, since we re we really said it started with Fantasia, but like this contrast between like goofy, bouncy animation and then like really like well-drawn, um, yeah. like still animation. One thing I will say about this segment is you can literally take any frame of it and it would be a painting on the wall. And, and we've said that about other segments in the past and that just goes to show how well it literally is animated it doesn't really move as much as bumble boogie so like i can understand why that would be a better choice but i just like the different palettes of the trees and the different time zones um you know seeing a nightfall and sunset it's really just a visual perspective and i'm a sucker for that i guess it's just like you said you could put it hanging on a wall um that's pretty much it in terms of that 
I think that as we had said post uh I guess it was post Bambi that the animation they're kind of set in their ways because it's kind of like outside of this contrast like I was just saying between Mm -hmm. the silly bouncy and then like the really like uh picturesque looking um it's kind of very steady throughout so like I feel like this is one of the last times you see something quite like this um in terms of its animated sequence the tree segment but also um like you said it's just kind of there's really not much else to it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so what's your best voice actor? God, I didn't even know. I was just, this is kind of like I could have flipped the coin. <laughs> I went with uh, Dennis Day, who did Johnny Apple, Johnny Appleseed. Yeah. It wasn't really like... It, I felt it was very reminiscent of The Prince in Snow White with that lush, high-pitched vibrato male singing voice that's something out of like a like an old storybook. Like I guess I have this stereotypical image of like, a classic man in a story you know whatever and it's just always this like i don't know breathe like yeah yeah and that's and that was it so it's just really um it was just the one I made a note of. But. I shouldn't say whimpery. It's like a you know low, what I'm, I'm, it's like a low tone assertive voice. Yeah, it's like this. It's this very yeah. It's this sim- or it's high this, tone, high tone uh, assertive voice. It's like the yeah the the romantic kind of like um, uh, somber hero kind of character. I can't even really explain it, but you, you know what I'm driving it. Yeah, but. I also went with Dennis Day. It fit the character design really well. Uh, so most traumatizing moment, I got to go with maybe the whole, uh, bill segment was a bit much. Oh, okay. Yeah. 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 But I'm going to focus specifically on my, one moment when <laughs> bill is breastfeeding from the coyote. <laughs> I just felt, you know, very dramatizing. It's a bit much because not only does he <laughs> latch on to a coyote's breast, but you then zoom into the mother's face where she's like oh oh my you know she has like a george takei voice oh my oh my (laughs) i i agree that's not my pick but i agree i think that's a really funny and a very accurate kind of pick (laughs) (laughs) it was just a very odd pick and these were some strange times for disney yeah so what's your pick um i just went with i i (laughs) Uh, sorry like I've done in weeks past it's just hard for me to pick a traumatizing moment so I just said I just wrote down little toot realizing all the horrors of the world (laughs) I don't know if traumatizing is the right word but like Jesus Christ they're just like they did with Pedro it's like they're trying to take these tiny little childlike characters of uh of inanimate objects and they're trying to make you feel for them and they're really just like between the arrest and the father has the garbage boat it's kind of just like i don't know yeah too that, many christmas it's just the whole thing was that was a lot <laughs> it's really a it was more uh but he still persevered remember he, josh he still pushed through um i really didn't know well i <laughs> the uh, the pecos bill segment was <clears throat> a runner-up for different for different reasons i mean the breast the sexism yeah, it's just but um I don't know. Yep. Yeah, keep that, coming back to these. That segment had just a lot. I, like I said, I focused on the very specific moment, but there were a lot of moments in that where I was just like, <laughs> my God. <laughs> my God. How did we get here? Yeah. So do you want to take away starting the conversation for this final uh, thoughts um, on this movie? Sure. It's like Disney's been trying to take 
their own spin on old folklore. So like with Johnny Appleseed, like it really stood out because it felt like they're trying to throw darts at the wall to figure out like kind of which story are we going to tell, which classic story are we going to spin? And that's why they used it as like a short with Johnny Appleseed because I don't, I, I don't think that could have worked as a full length feature. No, no way. Um, but I, and then I feel like they're doing, what they're doing is they're, they're doing in like ode to an old story, which we would later, which we'll see again for an Ichabod and Mr. Toad. And um, I think what they're trying to do is between, they're trying to do little, as we've said, experimental segments in the style of Fantasia, or as they put, they, they're going for Fantasia. Yeah, and I think, I think like this. Uh, sorry to interrupt, but no, at that point, I feel like you know you get a mix of both, uh, kind of long form. I mean, there are shorts within this greater movie, but you also get the experimental because I think Walt is like dipping his toes back into the water after Saludos Amigos, Three Caballeros, Make My Music, and uh, Fun and Fancy Free, which are all. They make, not only do they mix live action into the animation, but they also have kind of a different feel than these last two movies we're about to talk about. Like we were saying, there's a longer form of animation in this movie. I feel like Walt is like trying to dip his toes into the water, reteach his animators and his writing staff how to do a long narrative film. So mm-hmm. you make these shorts with longer stories that aren't reliant on a narrator dictating what is going on and it's solely reliant on the human being in the film but you still needed to sprinkle in like a couple short you know quick segments in there right because they reverted back to like anna fantasia style i guess Mm -hmm. right because they have like we said with um um like with with Mickey and the Beanstalk or whatever the last week or yeah, fun and fancy free. Yeah, so like there are certain segments where you feel like they could have had they they toyed with full length feature ideas, and then there's obviously because they're filling in the gaps with segments that aren't full length, they kind of just have fun with the animation, and so that's where you get like the Bumble Boogie and the Cats Don't Dance and the you know yeah. The cats in the whatever, cats in pajamas. Um, cats but, in the cradle in the sofa. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and I just feel like, as far as experimental is the one, the word that I think we keep coming back to every week with the wartime because you can feel it. And I think what you said is interesting that they're dipping their Walt's dipping his toes back into what he's familiar with because you can see it's kind of like they're gearing up, especially with the next one we're going to talk about, that they're gearing up towards um, bigger narratives. Yeah. Um, cause this is really the last time we're going to see this kind of experimentation, I think with Disney animated movies until, uh, like until Fantasia 2000. Yeah. Right. So yeah, I think that's pretty much all we have to say about this. So let's just jump right into the next one. The adventures of Ichabod and Mr. Toad. All right. All right. In the tradition of timeless family treasures like Pinocchio and Snow White comes Disney's 11th animated masterpiece, The Adventures of Ichabod and Mr. Toad. What is it? It's the story of two classic characters who prove the greatest adventure of all is making your dreams come true. What have I been missing? Pass the dream along to your family. Come along, we'll go for a jolly ride. Own Disney's The Adventures of Ichabod and Mr. Toad. Now on video for the first time. I actually do have a couple of notes about this movie's formation. 
So Mr. Toad is actually the winds in the willow. Uh, that's the technical name of the book uh, or the series that he's in. Uh, it was recommended to Walt in 1938. What's it called? James Bodero? Mm -hmm. I don't know. And our guy, Campbell Grant, who is also at Disney, they pitched the story to Walt and put together like a reel with rough sketches and the animators doing the voices. Walt thought it, and Walt thought it might be quote unquote awful corny, but bought the rights anyway. Uh, it was put into production in 1941 uh, and was supposed to be the last of the golden era, but Walt shelved the project because the animators, uh, the animation didn't live up to his standards. And then the strike hit and then the war hit. Uh, production started up back in 1946 when Frank Thomas came back from the war. He's one of the nine old men. But then there were layoffs in August of 1946. So production stopped. But then they started back up again in December. Uh, when the project was picked up in December, the animators were told to shorten it up to 25 minutes because it was going to get paired up with another movie. Mm. It was supposed to be paired up with the Legend of Happy Valley, or Gremlin, a Raw Dahl story, but neither one of those got made, so they decided to pair it with Fun and Fancy Free, uh, the Jack and the Beanstalk, that, but uh, that fell out because Bongo was done, and so was the Beanstalk, so they put those together, and finally Sleepy Hollow was added to this movie, or The Adventures of Ichabod, as I guess they will call it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Walt wanted to make Sleepy Hollow a full feature film, but it ended up not being long enough and was ultimately combined with this. And of course, as you and I noted, this was the last of the wartime era movies. So No, it's 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 good. You can you can see that they're kind of building. Yeah, I don't know if you have anything else specific about the actual No, I don't or if you just want to dive more into the, the story. I was gonna jump into the story. Yeah, that's fine. So The Winds in the Willows is the story of Mr. Toad and what a story it is. Essentially, I'm going to whittle it down. It, this one is harder to do because it's only two long segments. That's what I was saying about Walt dipping his toes back into everything. You could see he wants to tell the longer stories again. He wants, yeah, exactly. It opens in a library with a narrator introducing the characters and we cut into a storybook with Rat and Mole uh, who get a letter from Toad Hall from McBadger. They're all very worried about Mr. Toad and his new mania because this man is a man of mania. He loves speed. He has a need, a need for speed. And Mr. Toad stumbles across a car and he must have it. He must. So he signs over the deed to his fucking house, his mansion, and all his fortune over for this car and crashes the car. <laughs> I think he, there's a, a lesson here already. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? <laughs> He's a, Mr. Toad is arrested and brought to court. Ultimately, Mr. Toad is found guilty and thrown in the highest tower in the largest building in the whole city, which is very strange, the prison. Uh, the horse Cyril comes to visit Mr. Toad dressed as his grandmother, which I don't understand how you think a horse is a grandmother to a toad. Good job to the guards of this place. They 
let him in. Mr. Toad is given a disguise, the same disguise the horse came in, which again, I don't understand how these guards didn't notice the height differential from who went in and who went out. Listen, you can't question the logic. He's got rolled the punches. Yeah, but <laughs> Mr. Toad finds Mole and McBadger and Rat, and they decide to infiltrate Mr. Toad's old mansion to get the deed that the bar Mr. that the bartender Mr. Winky has. So they break in, and Looney Tunes ensues. I was just gonna say, as they get the deed, and the whole like place erupts. The mole, the it's, what's it called? The weasels, which look identical to the weasels from Who Framed Roger Rabbit. I was gonna say, action. yeah. Um, the characters, there are characters that look like they're from The Great Mouse Detective. There are characters that look like they're from Who Framed Roger Rabbit, and I'm I'm wondering, like, because this is still 1949, how much of this pre- predates uh, future Disney-related animated uh, films? I imagine a lot, but um, I also don't know. I wasn't there. Uh, we can ask Robert Zemeckis when he never yeah, comes on this show. Fly on the wall. Um, but please, um, c- continue. Ultimately, they get the deed, and... Uh, Mr. Toad's uh, mania is come to a close. But Toad has a new, a new mania, planes, because of course he does. That's the end of mis- this one. It's interesting to me that there is a Mr. Toad ride in Disneyland. Mr. Toad's wild ride, right? Something yeah. like that? Yeah. It's very strange that that ride exists because I don't know how many people have actually seen Mr. Toad. Well, again, like you've said, like you, we've been saying the last couple of weeks, it's like you, you know, we know this imagery from somewhere, even if we can't put our fingers on it. But yeah, I guess know. it's just become a staple of that park. And I we remember, are... I remember back in the day, it was like many, many years ago at this point, many, many. But I remember people freaking out when Mr. Toad in Disney World closed, and they changed it into a Winnie the Pooh ride, which is arguably better. So disrespectful. So disrespectful. Anyway, let's get into The Legend of Sleepy Hollow, which is sung and narrated by Bing Crosby. Like, Love what? it. Very strange. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're taken to Sleepy Hollow, New York, where Ichabod, an eccentric teacher who takes bribes of food, um, enters the town. He's a very lanky, big-nosed, strange individual, always reading. But he's also very Chaplin-esque, in which things around him just kind of flow. I see what you mean. I know what you mean. Like, no accident really occurs to him. It occurs to the person next to him Mm -hmm. because he just, like, obliviously avoids it. Yeah, yeah. So he's the new schoolmaster, as they sing at the song. Uh, The women all fall in love with him, and it makes Bram, also played by Bing Crosby, very jealous. He's a very jealous man, especially when Katrina comes to town. Mm -hmm. Katrina is the daughter of the richest man in the town. Of course. We know that because Ichabod pontificates his life with her, and most of it is about her money, not so much her. (laughs) Again, I think there's a moral here already. I, I don't know. I don't want to say that this is anti-Semitic because I don't know if Ichabod is Jewish, but they gave him a very big nose and made him very greedy. <laughs> um, well, you, you know, Walt. so I don't know if I should be offended or not. Um, you know, you know what they say about Walt and the Jews. Well, that's what I'm saying. I don't yeah. know. That's why I'm questioning. Can't tell. Um, anyway, 
uh, Ichabod goes to a party at Katrina's father's house where at the late hours, the party changes and everyone decides to tell spooky stories because that's what happens in parties in the uh, 1600s um, or whenever this takes place. I don't know, 17, whatever. Um, 1790. Oh, really? That late? In October of 1790, 14 years after the American Revolution and founding uh, the United States. Interesting. I thought it took place earlier than that. It's, I, I could see that. It's all good. You'll, you'll, you'll learn your history one day. You know, so. One day. Um, anyway, uh, the story of the Headless Horseman is told by Bram to scare Ichabod. And it works because he is a very big crybaby and continues to eat more food. I've ne- like this guy is eating everything. It is insane to me how much he eats in this he, one segment. He's, he's stress eating. He literally eats what, like a chicken hole or something. Yeah, I don't yeah, even yeah. know. It's ridiculous. Um, but anyway, Ichabod is very scared by the story. And on his way home, who does he run into but the headless horseman? Ooh. And it quite a chase scene ensues. I kind of wish that we still had the uh, award from Friday the 13th, Best, Best Chase, because this yeah. was a good one. That was good, yeah. It had the moments of fear and comedy very well. Yeah. So Ichabod tries to make it over the bridge because the bridge is where the Headless Horseman's powers are cut off. He makes it. But the Headless Horseman's uh, head, pumpkin head comes flying at him, and Ichabod is never seen or heard from again. Rumor is he has a f- family in a town not too far away. They do, there's no substantiated ev- evidence to that. They still think Everyone in Sleepy Hollow still thinks he was killed by the Headless Horseman. So that is the legend of Sleepy Hollow. Very fun. A very fun legend. We'll get into our final thoughts later, but let's get into the awards. Yes. What is your best song? So, um, just to preface, I think I've uh, made it clear enough. I feel like I've made it clear enough in this whole show since you and I first started this whole thing that I just I have a soft spot for horror and Halloween and all that. So, um, this a lot of this won't be a surprise. Um, I thought the best song was the Headless Horseman song. Yeah, me too. Um, it's very like eerie, uh, but very bouncy. It almost reminded me of like a Dean Martin song. Like I don't know. Sorry, <laughs> it was Bing Crosby who was yeah, one of, of, uh, of who was before like Dean Martin was, stole his style. Right. It was very. It was of its time, um, which I didn't realize. Uh, the top note, uh, top IMDb notes that the Headless Horseman uh, is considered to be one of the darkest songs for a Disney film, much like. Worthless from the Brave Little Toaster and Hellfire from Hunchback of Notre Dame. It was I don't nearly remember that song from Brave it, Little Toaster. It was <laughs> it was nearly cut from the film. Um, Hellfire so I, is really dark. That's like yeah. a really dark song. I love it, but it's I, that's um, like as dark as Disney has ever gone. So I mean, yeah, we'll save uh, we'll save our thoughts for the certain like films when we'll touch on them in the future. But it's like I think Disney dabbles best. I don't think we're getting to Hunchback anytime soon. No, no, no. But Disney kind of, da- I think Disney dabbles best when it gets dark because it's just not just for me. Well, for let's mine. look back at Fantasia. Our favorite segment in that movie was Night on Bold Mountain, which right. is literally the devil dancing with his minions. Yeah. And I think that it's like when you, you know, to, to they reference Hunchback and you would just, you know, mention it again. It's just, and I think that there are, there are traces that they have it where I'm like, 
this is really good. Not just because it's dark, but it's it's adult and it's a, it's not afraid to just expand their boundaries a little bit. Well, I think that if Toy Story has taught us anything, obviously there there are cartoons and animated movies that were for children and adults before Toy Story. Sure. But I think Toy Story really solidified the fact that like adults want to be entertained when they watch these movies too. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. obviously the Disney Renaissance movies were for children and adults, but yeah. Toy Story is really where the humor transferred for both adults and hum and kids. And I feel like every movie thus after has tried to like capitalize on getting both audiences. And those that don't still make money, you know, like I don't know how adult the trolls movies are. I never saw sure. them. But, no, but that's you know, a good that's a good point. That's a good like a chronological point where they learn to kind of have that blend because I know plenty of adults who uh, thrive on like oh I took my kids to see this movie but it's like I really I've watched it so many times because I love it. No, well, I we, we've come a long way and I think that when I think of not to just to bring it full circle when I think of the Headless Horseman song on the Headless Horseman bits in general it's just a reminder of what I like about Disney going dark and I'll I'll obviously touch more on that as we go along. No, I but, agree uh, completely because that's also my favorite uh, song. It got dark. It got fun it was able to keep that bounce to it. You know, all the characters in the party are literally bouncing with the song. So it has that good balance. Uh, but let's move on to best animated sequence. Take it away. I actually went with the segment before the Headless Horseman and went with the dance. I feel like that was very much a Chaplin-esque segment. The, um, where Brom, the song? Yeah, uh, yeah. Where all the characters are literally dancing. Yeah, yeah. And Brom is trying to cut into Ichabod dancing with Katrina, but all the bad stuff keeps happening to Brom. Yeah. And Ichabod just keeps gliding along, and it's and then they have that like short uh, pudgy girl who is like going crazy for Brom. Mm -hmm. And it had that extra layer of humor. I thought it was just very well done. <laughs> yeah. No, I understand. That's it. Was very. It was reminiscent because with like that's where with the fire going on and all of them in the the one area, it's it was almost reminiscent of not uh, quite Gaston from Beauty and the Beast, but mm -hmm. it was kind of had that feeling of like characters becoming invested in the mood of like the song. You know what I mean? Like everyone like because the characters were dancing and there's so much going on in the background. Yeah, I think it, it adds a lot more than just a character, one character having a platform and singing. No, Gaston and is like a real. That's a good analogy. Mm -hmm. I feel like they definitely mined from this. For that that's, song there's something fun about it because all the characters in the scene are having fun with the characters you know what i mean it's yeah, not exactly. just yeah um so what's your best animated sequence so i so i wa obviously wanted to go with the headless horseman the whole chase sequence which i'll just i'll save my words on that but i'm gonna go with the wind in the willows chase sequence <laughs> <laughs> you <laughs> you brought up looney tunes earlier and um, i and be this goes full Looney Tunes. So as I did last week, where I I gave kudos to Casey and Casey at the bat. This is the similar a similar logic I have is that I was so I was so entertained by it because it was just like when I think like cartoons of like characters chasing back. You know, obviously Looney Tunes comes to mind, and like you had said last week, a lot of the animators split uh, to join Looney Tunes to for to have more of a wild I don't know uh, palette I guess. Yeah. 
where they could like have play with dynamite and things could blow up in their face and it wouldn't really matter. So this is like a taste of that. So like when I think of cartoons, I think of like Scooby-Doo of like the doors and the characters running, chasing each other throughout doors. And then the bad guys are chasing the good guys. And then the good guys are chasing the bad guys. And it's kind of like- Scooby-Doo is probably a better analogy. Right, especially it, for this scene. Yeah, it goes full Scooby-Doo, just like you said, because the good guys are chasing the bad guys, and the bad guys it's are chasing so, the bad guys, and it's, it's like so silly. They're running down the halls of uh, the mansion. I mean, they're throwing daggers, and they're like, <laughs> as uh, the daggers are pinning the character to the wall, but like it's only got their clothes. Um, there's things flying in the air. Characters are coming out of nowhere. All the characters look alike, and they're running back and forth. And I just think, as far as animation goes, like that reminds me of like a stereotypical cartoon. Um, obviously, you know, I wanted to go with more of the Sleepy Hollow, but I wanted to give kudos to Wind Wind in the Willows, where I felt it needed credit, and I thought I just thought it was a very entertaining sequence. So then, let's get into best voice actor. Go for it. I think there's only one answer here. Uh, for me, anyway, I think it's Bing, Car- Bing Crosby. Okay. Um, if you have a different one, that's cool. I just I felt like, oh, okay. But we'll go with yours for now. I don't. I have nothing to say. It's Bing Crosby. You know what I mean? He's the man's got his reputation for a reason. Um, I think it's just cool. I think it's cool that he dove into Disney and he he was Bing so Crosby, heavily involved. Don't get me wrong. That it was cool to hear him, and he did a very good job. I mm-hmm. he's my runner up. Mm-hmm. But I actually went with uh, Eric Bloor as uh, J. Thaddeus Toad. I just felt like okay, he was having so much fun with the role. And as yeah, anyone yeah, yeah. who has listened to previous episodes knows, I like when people are having fun. And like I could tell they're having fun. Yeah, yeah, and he's yeah. just hamming it up. And I feel like chewing up the microphone. So that was oh, my that's choice. A great, that's, that's a great answer. That's good. Yeah. So most traumatizing moment. I went with the end of Sleepy Hollow when he just vanishes they like put I, I think the reason they added the picture of uh ichabod with a family at the end was so that it's less traumatic for children but the thought that he is really just dead and gone like vanished is i don't know that's pretty uh traumatizing i think that because that's not quite my my pick but i think that's actually better for because we could we purposely use the word traumatizing i think that's per that's the better choice um because it's not it's not normal for disney to even allude to their main characters being killed off yeah and i know this is a still technically a short it's one of the two shorts but well they allude to villains being killed all the villains time. all the time but heroes dying is usually a no-no for disney right so that's if the the worse the villain is the more prominent that they'll they'll have they'll be killed off um even if you don't see it you know they'll fall off a cliff or they'll uh whatever it is you know what i mean the only exception i could think of is ursula when she's literally impaled by a ship impaled by a ship you know and the 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 more the more nasty and villainous a villain is you know the more prominent it's like okay we're going to kill them off um but with heroes it's like they never the heroes and the protagonists never, like you said, it's a no-no. So to see Ichabod disappear and then just, a, it's, a, it's a legend. So they allude to him, oh, is he dead or whatever? It's pretty ballsy even for Disney. I know that's how the story was had always gone. Um, I, I mean, I had gone with the chase. Not It's not really traumatizing. I, I, I imagine it's the more genuinely, it's trying to be genuinely terrifying for children, I guess. It's not really, it's not particularly a scary moment, of course. But I loved everything about it in terms of the, 
um, the dark colors, the neon pink backdrop, the sw uh, swishing of the machete, and then of course the glowing orange behind the black skeleton pumpkin face. Everything about it was very, it hit all those notes for me as a, as a, a horror and Halloween person. Um, of course it's a Disney movie, but it's like, I think that they went for terror in a way that I just thought it worked. It was very exciting to see that. Well, let's you know? just jump into final thoughts now. I feel yeah, like course. that's one of the best assets of the Ichabod mm -hmm. uh, segment. It does have a really good balance of horror and comedy. Mm -hmm. uh, it knows when to be funny and to be, you know use. It knows when to use comedy to build characters up, like it did with Ichabod. Because let's be real, I don't think we hear Ichabod speak at all, but we're still invested in his character because we through the comedy we see how he interacts with the world around him mm -hmm. it that one also had like kind of a beauty and the beast vibe especially when he used the book to like protect himself yeah uh, even him in even the woods like the the chase sequences i'm just thinking of like the wolves in the woods in beauty and the beast it felt like the Im the imagery was kind of lifted directly from sleepy hollow uh, from you yeah. know from um but, i think that the it's a good predecessor you know to a lot that came after it yeah it's interesting doing these two movies together because sure the winds and the willows mr toad takes place in the uk but combine medley time and the adventures uh, and sleepy hollow these are very americana movies because mm -hmm. you have the legend of johnny appleseed a cowboy and now a legend from uh of sleepy hollow which is a uh, american based as well so it's interesting looking at like you said in medley time the american folklore is just in full swing here i think it's interesting that you made the point before about it feeling like they're building towards what would be the silver age they're building back into the big narrative features and you can feel it especially with these last movies um you could kind of feel it in the theme parks as well because like I said, I forget which uh, podcast I said it, but if you break down Walt's brain, it looks like Disneyland. So one segment of Disneyland is Frontierland. He loves Americana. Yeah. And another segment is Main Street USA. This is like, you know, I'm not questioning his patriotism. I could tell he loved America, clearly. But it's just interesting that these two... Uh, I, yeah, these two movies kind of like pinpoint exactly his love for Americana. Yeah, it's really, um, he clearly, I mean, there's a reason the Disney formula works because they kind of have, beginning with Snow White, they've kind of, and it's fitting that this is the kind of going to be the end of all of Ichabod is where we end the whole show to, to say these kinds of things. Because I'll, obviously when we do the ranking, well, I'll go into my deep, deep, my deep dive, but um that is beginning with Snow White, it's kind of like he, uh, Walt kind of struck gold where with re retelling old stories and spinning old tales and kind of just be it a full length feature or whatever, a 20 minute, 30 minute segment. It's kind of just, he's, there's clearly a routine here and that's it, why it works with people. Um, I think this whole notion of uh, American or, or all viewers recognizing Disney characters and Disney themes and visuals, not even knowing that where they're from, is the whole part of what, of how Disney has kind of consumed, it's not really a good word, how Disney has kind of um, been so heavily uh, influenced in, all, in our culture growing up. Because it's just been everywhere. They splash it all over the place, even if you don't know where it's from. And I think it's just, 
I mean, Sleepy Hollow and Johnny Appleseed, like he didn't, like Walt didn't make up those stories, but he put them in a visual palette that like can very be easily um, palpable for children and adults alike. So it's just kind of something that's been a part of our society. And yeah. again, I'll save the rest of that for the deep dive. But Well, Disney has this inane ability to making their version of something the automatic go-to in your brain. Like when yep. you think, um, when you think of uh, Cinderella, of course, or Snow White, or Peter Pan, yeah, or yeah, Peter Pan. Your mind doesn't think of the well in Snow White and Cinderella's case. It doesn't make you think of the uh, brothers, what well, the Grimm brothers story anymore. Right, your brain right. automatically goes to the Disney movies. Yeah, you know, if they're ever remaking a movie of Snow White, you question, oh, who's going to play Happy, Sleepy, Dopey? You know, of course, the, the characters we already know. Yeah. They're not thinking, oh, well, they could branch off and make whatever the list of strange dwarves I said was. No, they've had it's it had an influence for a reason. Um, but he did a, that with Sleep, Sleepy Hollow and Johnny Appleseed too. Um, not that we really talk too much about Johnny Appleseed anymore, but if you do think of him, you're going to think of the Disney version. It's still and one even of those Tim Burton did Sleepy yeah. Hollow. My mind automatically goes to this version rather of than course. Tim Burton's. Yeah, it's just, like I said, they create a visual palette. And like I was saying, even with Casey at the Bat and stuff like that, like I had storybooks and I had an Ichabod. Uh, it wasn't even Ichabod. It was, um, it was the Legend of Sleepy Hollow. It was like a storybook. It was like a big, I can remember when there, were, there was a big book and it was just basically the story broken down into like a few pages and then <clears throat> they consolidated it. And that's the thing is they took wartime shorts and they didn't just apply them to Disney um sing-along vhs tapes but like even storybooks or like you said in the theme park rides like these are visual images that are taken from all kinds of folklore and i think there's something very unique about that because walt seems to understand the core of storytelling in a traditional sense to mm -hmm. take you back in time and there's a reason that all these stories take place in past eras you know what i mean they're, they're all uh storybook fairy tales so I think that's a good place to end this uh, conversation. I agree. I agree. Cool. It's been fun. Um, so it's a great way to stay in shape. Let's get into picks of the week. Do you sure. have yours? I do. You want me to go first? Go for it. All right. So for this week, I picked the uh, 2000 DreamWorks animated film, uh, The Road to El Dorado. Uh, going back into line with my original uh, picking non-Disney animated movies, um, talking about folklore and legends and whatnot, um, The Road to El Dorado, I think, is a very notable latter-day animated film, hand-drawn animated film, and it's one of the last of its kind. Um, DreamWorks has kind of, over the years, kind of, they've kind of found their own f um, footing with the, uh, forgive me if I'm wrong, they do the Minions? Yes. Uh, no, that's like not like a, a, a Luma no. something. No, Illumination. Illumination, that's it. DreamWorks has trolls, right? Trolls DreamWorks is DreamWorks? Yes, DreamWorks is trolls. <laughs> I just want to make sure I got my history. So DreamWorks has kind of like found its own footing in a more, I don't want to say kid-friendly, but they've like, it's a very, like Shrek kind of put them on this map of being more slapstick in a adult and crude kind of way, I guess. Mm -hmm. I don't know. <clears throat> but The Road to El Dorado, I think, is a very unique movie. Elton John did the music. Um, you've got these two very funny, sarcastic, witty characters, and you stick them in the middle of this Aztec kind of adventure. Um, 
and it gets kind of wild and it gets it delves into like uh fantasy but not really in a silly way it gets silly when it needs to be but um i just think there's a lot of great comedy a lot of great humor and it's very it works for adults as with children it's reminiscent of the kinds of stories that we've seen from disney again like i was just saying in, in about disney is is the idea of capturing that traditional folklore i think road to el dorado does a good job at uh doing that um it's it may not be as memorable as a disney a classic disney movie but it's one that's always stuck out in my mind so as always i'm gonna stick to my guns on that one that's a good one i haven't yeah. watched that movie in like i don't even know 15 yeah it's been years 16 but years i, I can know. still still remember it <laughs> yeah that's a good one though i'm yeah. gonna go with a twist i'm gonna go with princess and the frog it's the last of the oh, Disney wow. 2D animated movies because this is the last recommendation we're going to give. It would, it's just interesting to see not everything turn on its head, but you, Disney, we have talked about, has um, subtle and maybe not so subtle racism in these movies. So it's good to see it flip on its head and actually have uh, Black characters as the lead. And it's also interesting, I think, after watching the first couple of Disney movies to see where the 2D animation went. And unfortunately, it's the last of the 2D animation uh, Disney movies. And I honestly don't know if we'll get any more 2D animation no, ever it's, again. That movie doesn't get enough love, I don't think. And I think That's because, another reason I'm recommending it. I think that it's, it's so a underrated. very underrated movie. That mu- the music is great. The villain is great. Yeah, Dr. Um, Facilier is pretty oh, cool. The whole story of it, yeah, everything about it is very, it's very reminiscent of like Little Mermaid and like Renaissance Disney. It's, yeah, which I think that was their goal. Uh, yeah. They did that, that and Tangled were the ones that really turned Disney around and got them out of their second dark age. But yeah. we'll talk about that maybe at a later date. No, yeah, that's a good pick. So uh, I think this is a good place to end this episode. As always, you can follow me on Instagram at Mr. Filmart. You can follow me on Letter- Letterbox at Mr. Filmart. You can follow Josh and I on Instagram at hey. Who's Filmography. Who's Filmography on Instagram? Yes. Who's Filmography? And did you <laughs> want to give your Letterbox information oh, again? It's uh, it's Beesh, B E S H. That's there it. There you go. On Letterbox, well, but uh, follow the podcast, and you know, we'll hopefully we'll, uh, you know, we we won't have to, you know. Uh, do anyone poor favors in order to get money to you know sponsor this because it's cost this is a very expensive show very expensive production (laughs) uh so we will see you next time in a very special episode where we talk about uh crimbus so we're gonna make some christmas making christmas making christmas (laughs) making christmas making christmas All right, so we will see you next time.